Okay, you guys are in the home stretch. We're gonna do some cases. Dr. Dorbola is gonna do um, some pet cases so you can get a little bit more exposure to pet as well as some spec and some more viability. And then we'll do the last exam session and then questions. So um, I'd like to welcome um, Dr. Dorbola back to do uh, some cases. So we'll get her computer set up and we'll be all set. Set the timer. The timer can you set it? Good afternoon, everyone. So I realize this is the last but one session. So we'll try to make it interactive. I have audience response questions. I want you to participate and um, try to answer uh, some of the questions. Um, there's some questions that we'll take on later. So the first case I wanted to show uh, was that of a 53-year-old gentleman with history of pulmonary sarcoidosis, treated with steroids, being worked up for palpitations and atrial fibrillation. Uh, came in for a cardiac PET study for evaluation of sarcoidosis. This is something we didn't discuss with the viability section, so I just put in a case uh, to make sure we could discuss that. Um, typically, these patients undergo perfusion uh, imaging with either rubidium or SPECT. Then uh, they are prepared differently from the viability patients. This is a very different protocol. Remember, with the viability patients, we're trying to force the normal cells to use glucose, and the hibernating cells will use glucose no matter what. With sarcoid, we're trying to suppress glucose utilization by normal cells. So what we want to do is, we, if we see FTG uptake, then we assume that it is related to inflammatory activity. Obviously, we can't tell for sure it's sarcoid, but we can say that there's myocardial inflammation. So this is something to keep in mind that there are different ways of performing this study. The study is performed for sarcoid by suppressing myocardial uptake. So what we do is we give them a high-fat diet and we avoid carbohydrates. The so patients get detailed instructions of not to drink anything that has carbohydrate in it, including you know, sodas, no milk in the coffee, no sugar, uh, nothing like that. So this patient had no epicardial coronary disease. And here you see two sets of images. On the left side is a pretreatment study, and on the right side is a post-treatment study, and I'll walk you through this. So alternate rows shows rubidium and FTG, rubidium, FTG, rubidium, FTG. What you'll notice is that these two images are mirror images of each other. So wherever there's a perfusion defect on your rubidium image, you see FTG uptake. And wherever there's normal perfusion on FTG, on uh, rubidium, there's no FTG uptake, all right? So what this tells us is that your glucose manipulation, the preparation worked well. In normal cells are using free fatty acids. They're not using FTG. So we are confident that this FTG uptake is pathological. So this is hotspot imaging. And you see the same in various views here, and you see the same here. Look at the septum. 
and look at the FTG uptake, mismatch pattern. Again, this is a mismatch, it's abnormal, but in the context of normal epicardial coronary arteries, this represents myocardial inflammation. On the right is a post-treatment study six months after treatment with steroids, and you still see the perfusion defect, still see the FTG uptake. So the question here is, what can you say about cardiac sarcoid activity in this patient, looking at baseline and post-treatment? Is it unchanged, is it improved, or cannot be determined based on uh, the data shown? Go ahead and vote. All right, all over their place. Okay, can we go back to the slides again? All right, so the answer here is maybe it's slightly improved or cannot be determined. I think unchanged is also an option because you know the images look very similar. So I'm not surprised that you have an even split. So how can you tell for sure whether or not there is a change? And this is something that all of us need to remember. When you have hotspot imaging, you don't have a normal reference segment. So even if a few myocytes take up FTG, the image is scaled to that area. So I don't know if everyone is with me on this. Even if there's less FTG uptake on the follow-up study, all right, there's less FTG uptake here, but because this is hotspot imaging, there's no FTG in the normal areas, the image is scaled, so it makes it look like 100% of max, all right? So this is something to keep in mind that when you're interpreting hotspot images, changes in response to therapy cannot be interpreted by directly looking at these so-called relative PET images. You need to perform quantitation of some sort and what nuclear medicine folks would call specific uptake values. So you need to compute absolute radio tracer uptake in any given area, pre-treatment, post-treatment to make a judgment. The other way to do it is to come up with a reference segment. So if you look at the fused, the overall whole body FTG images, you can see the uptake in the heart and uptake in the lower portion of the lungs and the liver. And look at the ratio compared to the liver on the pre-treatment and look at the ratio on the post-treatment. All right, so when you have a normal reference segment, now you realize that the FTG uptake on the post-treatment scan is much lower than the pretreatment scan. Okay, this is going to be an issue with um, using FDG for ischemic imaging, ischemic memory imaging. This is what Dr. Soman was talking about using BMIPP with SPECT. You can do the same with FTG. Remember, what's happening in ischemic myocardium? There's a shift from free fatty use, free fatty acid use to glucose use. So you can use a fatty acid tracer like BMIPP and SPECT imaging to identify direct imaging of ischemia, or you could use FTG to look at FTG uptake in the ischemic myocytes. So those are the two options for ischemic imaging. If you use FTG for direct ischemia imaging, you could potentially expect an image like this, which is a hotspot image, and then you need to compare it using whole body images for reference. How would a negative sarcoid study look? It would look something like this. Your perfusion would be normal. And then what you see on your FTG images is pretty much blood pool activity. So your blood pool in the left ventricle, blood pool in the right ventricle. And in fact, if you look down here, 
you can see there's a negative shadow of the myocardium. And this is a study suggesting that these myocytes are not using FDG, they're not using glucose, but they're actually using free fatty acid for their metabolic needs. It's an excellent PrEP study, negative for cardiac sarcoid activity. All right, let's move on with our uh, cases for your board review. So 78-year-old female with diabetes, non-ST elevation MI, ejection fraction of 38%, and this is a stress-stress rubidium PET-CT images, alternate rows showing stress rubidium, alternating with rest rubidium. Stress and rest, stress and rest. And we have a question coming up. So look at the images. What do you do next with this patient? Would you do an F18 FTG PET study? Would you do a thallium redistribution study, low-dose dobutamine echo, or would you do a stress PET with quantitative myocardial blood flow analysis? All right, I agree with the majority of you who picked F18 FTG PET. Uh, the patient has an extensive perfusion defect in the LED distribution, showing a little bit of ischemia, but predominantly fixed defect. The resting perfusion shows a huge perfusion defect. I think the next study would be an F18 FDG. And this patient underwent an FDG scan. This is a glucose-loaded FDG scan. And now you see rubidium on the top, FDG in the second row, rubidium FDG, rubidium FDG. All right, take a look at the images, look at the perfusion defect, and look at the glucose uptake. And then we have a question coming up. So the anterior wall in this patient demonstrates transmural scar, hibernation, or stunning. All right. So this is excellent. Most of you got it right. So this demonstrates the classic mismatch pattern. You see a perfusion defect with a lot of FTG uptake and this mismatch. Now, just for the sake of discussion, what about the inferior wall? Why is there no glucose uptake in the inferior wall? So this case was perplexing even to us when we did it. But we came up with an explanation that this patient's anterior wall was so glucose avid that the image normalized to the anterior wall, and it scaled down the counts in the inferior wall, and that's why you're not seeing any FTG in the inferior wall. So having come to that conclusion, we suggested to the referring physician that this is extensive hibernation, and the magnitude of hibernation suggests that there's a lot of hibernating myocardium. It's glucose avid, and this patient will respond to revascularization. So this patient went on to have revascularization, came back two years later again with symptoms. This time had a stress rest perfusion study and the ejection fraction was normal and you can see complete recovery of function. Stress and rest images are completely normal in the ejection fraction, improved nicely. All right, next case, 75-year-old woman admitted for non-ST elevation MI, cath showed an occluded LAD, EF was 35%. And here you have rest, and F18 FDG images. So look at the history again. It's an old patient comes in with an ST elevation MI and there was an occluded LED. So the question here was very specific, occluded LED with a low EF. And the question was, should we open up this occluded LED? And we will only attempt that if there's significant viability in that area. And if the images don't show significant viability, she's not a typical person that we would just go ahead and open the vessel up. So these are the rest 
rubidium and F18 FTG images. Again, rubidium, FTG, rubidium, FTG alternate rows. Now the question for you is the anterior wall in this case demonstrates is it transmural scar, hibernation, stunning, or normal myocardium? Go ahead and vote. All right, perfect. The numbers are going up. <laughs> Excellent. I agree with all of you. Uh, there was a nice matched defect. There's a severe perfusion defect with a severe reduction in glucose uptake. A beautiful study, um, transmural scar. Okay, next example, 59-year-old diabetic male underwent arrest, dipedomol rubidium PET study, reason for the test was dyspnea and heart failure, and it was uh, one day stress, stress, rubidium, and these are the images. Stress, rest, stress, rest, and these are what we call um, the fusion images. These are the quality control images, uh, as Dr. Heller may have pointed out earlier. Uh, we try to see the alignment between the emission images, which is this, compared to the transmission map, which is the CT scan in grayscale in the back. We want to make sure that the heart border fits within the heart shadow on the CT image. So that's what this is, okay? So this is the stress-stress perfusion. These are the fusion, looks very good. And obviously all of you are seeing that inferior wall severe perfusion defect. So a patient went on to have an FTG study. And here you have rubidium 82 and FTG images. And these are the patient's FTG images combined with the CT scan. And the question for you is about this uptake here. You know, you see a small uptake here, a little bit of uptake there, and some uptake there. I'll go back to the previous slide. On your perfusion, on your flow study, we didn't see any abnormal uptake. But here, you have several foci of abnormal uptake. So the question is, what does this abnormal extracardiac uptake suggest? Does it suggest aortic inflammation? Does it suggest AICD artifact? You saw the patient has AICD leads. Does it suggest malignancy or is it radionuclide contamination? Go ahead and vote. All right, so there's a split between two or three choices here. Uh, let's go back to the pictures. Radionuclide contamination. This is not radionuclide contamination. The reason is this is inside the chest, and these are extensive areas. You see it within the patient's body, so it's unlikely to be. It's not superficial. It's not radionuclide contamination. Now, is it aortic inflammation? That's a good point. But when you look at your transaxial, you can see your aorta here. The uptake is actually para-aortic, not in the aorta. So this is lymph node uptake, and these are actually all mediastinal nodes in this patient, and this uptake is a focal uptake in the lung. So this turned out to be malignancy. Uh, unfortunately, it was disseminated malignancy, and it was picked up on the FTG image. So something to keep in mind for those of you who are practicing, look at the images, look at the cardiac aspects, but also look at extracardiac uptake, because FTG, is taken up by malignant uh, tumors. This is like technetium goes to the breast tumors. FTG can go to cancers. So that's something to keep in mind uh, when you're reading these cases.
All right, next case is an ammonia case, 55-year-old female with atypical chest pain, obese, 5'5", 210 pounds with large breasts. She underwent initially a SPECT sesame B study. And here you have adenosine SPECT. These are the raw data, stress and rest. Stress uh, at the apex, mid-ventricle base, rest at the apex, mid-ventricle base. And uh, here you can see, you know, a perfusion defect in the anterior wall that seems to improve at rest. And the breast position is different, stress versus rest. So the concern is whether this is variable breast attenuation artifact on the SPECT images, you know. So this patient came back and underwent an ammonia PET scan. And these are the images, stress and rest ammonia, apical slices, mid slices, basal slices. The predominant finding here, we haven't discussed any ammonia, so I'll point out, is this defect at the base. It's a fixed defect at the basal lateral wall shown here as well as shown here. So this is SPECT and this is PET with that fixed defect. And there's no anterior wall defect. So we know already that it's not breast attenuation. So the question is, what's the reason for this fixed basal lateral wall defect in this patient? Is it non-transmural scar, attenuation artifact, normal variant, none of the above? Go ahead and vote. All right, I'm impressed. A majority of you got it right. So the only artifact you need to know about ammonia in addition to misregistration and everything else, an artifact specific to ammonia is this so-called fixed basal lateral defect. For some reason, some patients who undergo ammonia imaging do have a perfusion defect at the basal lateral wall which is fixed and it is a normal variant if associated with normal wall motion. Uh, why is this seen? I think no one has a clear-cut explanation for why this happens, but this is a normal variant, and I wanted to point that out. All right, next case, 55 male, 5'10", 210 pounds, with atypical chest pain, referred for rest dipyridamol PET, underwent a dipyridamol PET study, and here you have stress-rest images alternating rows. This is the PET CT overlay stress and rest. The question for you is, what's the reason for the reversible anterolateral perfusion defect in this patient? And your options, these are going to be the same questions for the next three or four cases. Your options are, is it ischemia in an LAD diagonal distribution? Is this patient motion, physical patient motion? Or is it related to changes in patient breathing during the vasodilator stress? Or is it none of the above? So look at this and look at the overlay between the heart shadow on the CT and the PET images. Go ahead and vote. All right, we have a majority picking none of the above and I think a small, smaller proportion picking patient motion. Let's go back. So uh, if we look at the images, what do you see? You see a misregistration here between your PET and the CT images, okay? One thing to remember with PET, remember we said we give the vasodilator and scan the patient immediately thereafter. So patients are being imaged during maximal hyperemia. And as most of us are familiar with, vasodilators cause changes in breathing patterns. Patients tend to breathe deeply. 
and they also have uh, this acute hyperemic response. So they have a sense of urge to take a deep breath. So all of these can relate or can result in varying breathing patterns between the CT scan, which is a 10 second snapshot, versus the PET scan, which is a seven minute image. And with that, you can come up with this sort of misregistration. How do you know for sure that it's not ischemia in LED? I think you'd won't know for sure, but you don't want to read a scan with misregistration as a real perfusion defect. Is it patient motion? This is not patient motion. I'll show you a case as to how you can identify patient motion. Uh, is it changes in patient breathing, which is most likely what it is? And I'll show you how the diaphragmatic position you can see is different from stress compared to rest. And it's not none of the above here. If you look at the rest and stress overlay, you can see that the diaphragmatic position changed significantly between the CT and between the PET, and you can see this misregistration. So the most likely cause here is changes in patient breathing related to, leading to misregistration between the PET and CT and leading to this so-called artifact. Why is it important to identify the precise etiology of this? It's important to identify this because if you can tell that this is breathing differences and not real patient motion, you have software available that can be used to re-register the images, produce a new attenuation map, and produce new images which are interpretable without artifact. All right, is that clear? So it's very important to understand the reason for misregistration, and that's the reason why. So what do you do next? Do you review non-attenuation corrected images? Do you use software to realign the PET and CT images? I already answered the question here. And repeat rest, PET, none of the above. So you would use software, and that's the reason why. So misregistration due to breathing is not infrequent. It should be evaluated by looking at this overlay on every patient. Software is available, and do not interpret non-attenuation corrected PET images. All right, let's go to the next case. What's the reason for the reversible anterolateral defect in this case? You have a reversible anterolateral defect here. Sorry, not reversible, anterolateral defect. And these are the PET-CT fusion images. All right, so the question for you is, what's the cause of this anterolateral defect in this patient? Again, same options. Is it ischemia? Is it patient breathing? Is it patient motion during CT? or is it patient motion during the rubidium PET? Take a guess and we'll discuss how to go through these uh, differentials. All right, split between patient motion during CT and rubidium. Yes, that's uh, correct, let's go back. The answer is patient motion during CT. How do you know? If you look at this overlay image, you can see that there's a bite taken off here from the CT image, and you see there's a vertical split here on the CT image as well. So this patient either had a hiccup or coughed or something, because it's a nine-second CT image. It's not like the patient moved a lot. But that brief movement resulted in a break in the CT images. Therefore, your attenuation map was not appropriate, and there was undercorrection of images, which resulted in this. So what do you do next? Do you review the non-corrected images? Do you use software to realign the PET and CT? Or do you repeat the study? Go ahead and vote.
Oh, sorry. I think this is the next. It's the right one. Okay. All right. Okay. So can we go back to the slides again? All right. So what do we do next? So remember, we said don't read the non-corrected images. So the so second option is do you use software to realign the patent CT? Software is available. It can be used when your emission image is good and your transmission image is good. The only problem is misalignment. Does that make sense? If your emission image is not good, patient motion, or if your transmission image is not good, patient moved during the CT, your software is not going to correct because your raw data is flawed. This is not a problem with aligning one over the other. There's a problem with the actual data that you acquired, the CT or the emission. So that's something to keep in mind that if your actual images are compromised by patient motion, software correction will not help. It can only help when both images are good and the only problem is misalignment between the two. Repeat the study would be an option in this patient if you wanted to do it. In any case, I wanted to just share with you how a non-attenuation corrected PET would look and why you should not be using it. So in this patient, we went ahead and processed the images without attenuation correction, and you will notice that the deeper structures of the heart, the infraceptum and the basal inferior, are much more attenuated than the rest of the structures. And see how your anterolateral wall forms a hot spot. The least attenuated portion of the heart, which is the anterolateral wall, tends to typically show up as a hot spot on these non-attenuation corrected images. So this is the reason why even if there's a real anterolateral defect, you're not going to see it on the non-corrected because there's going to be automatically in a hot spot there. All right, so this is just showing the bad images in relation to the good images. With attenuation correction, the infraceptal inferior are well perfused. Without AC, this is a problem. All right, next case, 89 female, histoprior MI many years ago, underwent RAS dipedomol study. These are the dipedomol protocols. Here you have stress and rest perfusion images. This is the PET CT overlay. Stress PET CT overlay, rest PET CT overlay. The reason for the infralateral defect at rest, see here, this infralateral defect. So what's the reason for this infralateral perfusion defect? Is it scar in the circumflex distribution? Is it patient breathing? Is it patient motion during CT? Is it patient motion during the PET acquisition? Go ahead and vote. Perfect, all of you got it. Let's go back to the images, most of you got it. This is an example of patient motion during PET. How can we say that? There's no significant misregistration. When you look at the rest images, see how you see a shadow here? And then you see activity up here in the lung field. So the patient was in a good position for the majority of the scan acquisition, but then for a portion of the scan acquisition, the patient moved lower down. Therefore, counts were acquired up here in this area, and the liver counts were acquired up here, and you can see this. So this is an indirect evidence of patient motion during scan acquisition. Do we have any tools to identify patient motion during PET? Remember, with SPECT, you have your rotating projection data because you have multi-frame acquisition. You have 64 frames. And if patient moves during one frame or the other, you can see a change in the heart position. 
with positron emission tomography, because of the simultaneous tomographic acquisition of counts, all the frames will show the same picture. You don't have multiple frames to look at for identifying patient motion. So patient motion can be very hard to detect on PET images. The technologies, as Dr. Gary Heller pointed out earlier, should be very aware of this and point out to the physicians that the patient moved or did not move. And you can look at ancillary findings like this, especially on transaxial images or on the PET CT overlay to provide some uh, helpful information. So this is just to point out the same thing. So what do you do next in this patient? So this is a stress image and this is the rest image. So what do you do on, on this patient next? Go ahead and vote. Oh, sorry, I think we are one question ahead, so that's okay, just ignore this question. I'll go back to my slides. All right, what do we do next is none of the above, all right? Because the stress perfusion images were completely normal. So you don't need to repeat the rest anymore. You already have your uh, normal answer there. So teaching points, once again, difficult to detect motion, careful attention during acquisition. Reframing is important. If you acquire images in what is called a dynamic acquisition, you can produce multi-frame images even with PET and look at those patient motion. There are no software solutions. If you detect patient motion and the image is degraded during PET because of motion, the only option is to repeat the study. There's no software at this time that will help you fix it. If you have a multi-frame acquisition and dynamic images, sometimes you can throw away the frames with movement, resum the rest of it, and look at it. But uh, those are the challenges that we have. Repeating the study is the most practical solution. Next case, 72 male, worsening angina, two months, rest adenosine rubidium study, known CAD, prior MI, prior PCI to the CERC, underwent an adenosine PET, and these are the perfusion images. The questions that you had previously were corresponding to this case. You can see the registration here. And you can see the stress and rest. Now the question is, what's the reason for this reversible anterior wall defect in this individual? Okay, go ahead and vote. All right, absolutely right. So this image quality was good. There's no misregistration here. There's nothing abnormal. This is corresponding to the typical distribution of a proximal LAD, and this patient has real ischemia. So when you read anterior or anterolateral perfusion defects, which is the most common location of um, artifactual defects with PET, you have to make sure that all the quality assurance was done like we discussed. You want to be sure that there's no misregistration. You want to be sure the patient did not move during the CT or during the PET. And if all of those are true, then you look at the perfusion images and it still shows a defect, then we have to interpret it as a real defect. Sorry. Yeah, good question. So this is actually, the patient had even of the hemidiaphragm and it was a liver coming up, being cut in an axial field. Sorry, that's somewhat confusing. So anyway, so this is what uh, we discussed. 
There are several reasons for these reversible anterolateral perfusion defects, misregistration from breathing, motion during CT, PET, or real ischemia. You want to first make sure the top three are not correct before interpreting the study as a real ischemia. All right, so now we'll switch gears, go to some SPECT cases. 75-year-old female referred for typical chest pain, known coronary disease and a prior stent to the mid-LAD. Comes back now with symptoms again. So she underwent a single-day adenosine MIBI study. And here you have stress and rest images, stress and rest images, stress and rest images, adenosine MIBI. All right, so take a look at that area here. And there's a question coming up on that. The question is, does the scan show ischemia, attenuation, is it normal, or you cannot be sure? Go ahead and vote. All right, so there's a complete uh, split here. Let's go back to the images. This is a tough case. That's why I put it up. This is actually a challenging spec study. And I put it up as how to interpret challenging spec studies. If you look closely at the images, there's a suggestion that the basal anteroseptum may be ischemic. And you can see that the septum looks shorter here than here. All right. So in any other patient, I would have been exactly in the same position that I'm not sure if this is real or not. But then we went back and looked at the story. This is a patient who has coronary disease and had a mid-LED stent, now comes back with typical chest pain. So when we looked at the story, we said, let's look at the angiogram. Maybe this is real in this patient, and maybe that's explaining the symptoms. So when you looked at the angiogram, what we found was the pre-stent angiogram showed a nice septal perforator, and this was jailed following the stent. So clearly, this was the cause of her typical anginal symptoms and related and correlated nicely with that small reversible defect. So the key point is when we have an equivocal spect which is not fitting in with a clear-cut abnormal, look at other clues, look at the history, try to put the whole story together. Maybe you'll find clues that will make you be more definitive about your answer. Next case, 45-year-old female referred for typical chest pain, family history of premature coronary disease. So she underwent an exercise study, went 12 minutes on a standard bruise. These are the SPECT images. Stress and rest. And here are the rotating projection images. Stress on this side, rest on this side. All right. Question here is, scan shows ischemia, attenuation, it's normal, cannot be sure, go ahead and vote. All right, so a lot of you voted for um, attenuation, some of you voted for cannot be sure. The precise answer here is we cannot be sure. We do recognize a problem with the study. We recognize that there is variable breast attenuation, all right? There definitely is variable breast attenuation and there's this defect that looks reversible. Based on those two points, can you conclusively say that this patient has attenuation but no ischemia? 
that's the question. I think in a symptomatic patient with premature uh, coronary artery disease, history of premature coronary, I think that's very hard to say for sure. So I think the best answer here would be cannot be sure. Patient went on to have a rubidium PET, completely normal, clarifying that this was all attenuation and there was no component of ischemia in this case. So if you look at the ACCHA ASNIC guidelines, adenosine or dipyridamol PET is indicated in patients in whom an appropriately indicated SPECT study has been found to be equivocal for diagnostic or risk stratification purposes. So this is something to keep in mind where you have challenging SPECT cases and you don't have a definite answer. Consider maybe positron emission tomography. Next case, 55 male, diabetic, obese, no prior cardiac history, normal ECG, takes gliburide, want uh, seven minutes on a standard bruise, non-ischemic response, here are the non-corrected SPECT images, stress and rest, stress and rest, and this was a non-gated study, so we don't have gating. So your question is, once again, same option, scan shows ischemia, attenuation, normal study, cannot be sure, go ahead and vote. All right, so now you're getting the theme of the story here, cannot be sure. <laughs> Without gating, I think it's very hard to be definitive that a fixed inferior wall defect is attenuation. It has all the features of attenuation, I agree. It's kind of in the right location, it's not very severe, smells like attenuation. So what could you do when you don't have gated images? I think this day and age you can perform attenuation corrected spec. So this patient underwent SPECT-CT, and these are CT-corrected SPECT images. Look at how nicely the inferior wall has become completely normal when corrected for attenuation. So I find that attenuation correction with SPECT is extremely helpful when you don't have gated information available. If you have gating available, for the most part, you rely on gating. If it moves well, you know it's an artifact. But if you don't have gating, I think SPECT uh, with attenuation correction can be a nice tool to look at it. This has been well studied, two separate studies showing that, you know, attenuation correction improves normalcy rate and also suggesting that there were no new artifacts introduced with attenuation correction. So equivocal spec teaching points, consider attenuation correction when you are in doubt. Next case, 65 female referred for typical chest pain. High blood pressure diabetes, went 10 minutes on a standard bruise, developed atypical chest pain, seven minutes into exercise that resolved two minutes into recovery. And she underwent a Sestamib study. This is supine. So the prone image is coming up. So you have your stress, rest, stress, rest, stress, rest. And the major problem that we had with this case was this bowel activity at rest and something here in the inferior wall. So, let's see. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's your supine. This is your prone image. So the patient uh, underwent prone stress imaging. So on top is prone. The rest is still the same. Obviously, we can't do much about it. But now you have the prone image. Look at that inferior wall again at the prone image. Okay, now here you have all the three put together. Prone stress on the top, 
supine stress in the middle and resting scan at the bottom. I'm not sure how well it's projecting, but the question again is, is it ischemia, attenuation, normal study, cannot be sure. Go ahead and vote. All right, good split again. Let's go back to the pictures. So we were actually not sure. So we interpreted this as a reversible perfusion defect when we looked at this compared to this. Supine to supine, there was a reversible perfusion defect. So remember, this was a patient who had typical anginal symptoms, 65, typical chest pain, risk factors, developed chest pain during the study, and the scan which seemed ischemic on the supine images, but when we did prone imaging, it kind of resolved but not completely. There were still some areas that we were questioning. So this was one where we contacted the referring physician and said, you know what, uh, in this patient with typical angina, do you believe the story? And they're like, yes, we think she has angina. Then we're like, oh, I don't know what, but if you truly believe the symptoms, you could perform an angiogram on this patient because then it's likely that she's inferior wall ischemia, but if not, we could consider something else. So the patient did not want to proceed with an invasive angiogram given the slight uncertainty we had. So she opted to do a CT angio here. So these are the CT angio images, LAD, OM, RCA. She had a very tight lesion in the right coronary artery. And these are the corresponding invasive angiogram images showing a nice correlation, critical disease in the RCA. Uh, and most likely this is what was causing her symptoms and causing that reversible defect. So what's the moral of the story here? When you do prone imaging or attenuation correction, when you do attenuation correction, specifically in this uh, paper relates to that, you do tend to improve specificity of the findings, but remember, at the cost of losing some sensitivity, especially in the RCA territory. Okay, so the same thing I think applies. We don't have available data for prone supine imaging directly that I'm aware of. But that's something to keep in mind that when you see a reversible defect in a patient and you prone the patient, you're causing more anterior wall attenuation on the prone image. And if that anterior wall attenuation is somewhat similar to the real inferior wall defect, you may have a so-called homogeneous looking image normalized on the prone images when in fact it is a real defect. So when you're looking at all these cases of attenuation and using attenuation correction with SPECT or prone supine imaging with varying attenuation patterns, that's something to keep in mind. Look at the patient's history. Keep in mind that this is a patient with real anginal symptoms and that there may be real disease in there. For the most part, it helps very much uh, in uh, improving the specificity, but there may be rare cases where you may miss stuff with AC. So for attenuation correction spec, the two points I wanted to make, if you look at the ASNIC guidelines, you need to read both the corrected and the uncorrected images for SPECT. This is different from the recommendation for PET, where we say you always read the attenuation corrected images. With SPECT, you need to look at both. Look at the non-corrected first, then look at the corrected, then finally make your decision. Understand the technique and interpret the images uh, accordingly. So next case, stress rest perfusion images. It's a SPECT CT study. What do you think the scan shows here? Is it ischemia, attenuation, normal, cannot be sure? 
This is a normal study. I'll give it to you. All right. So the scan is completely normal. Once again, remember, when it is CT-based attenuation correction, whether it's PET or uh, PET, you need to look at the ancillary findings. Your scan may be totally normal, but this patient may be having chest pain related to something else, which in this case, something else was related to lung cancer, multifocal lung cancer, uh, causing chest pain in this patient. So don't forget, when you're using AC, read the ancillary findings. This is an example of a patient with ground glass opacity uh, confirmed to be bronchioalveolar carcinoma. Thank you very much for your attention. What I'll do now is uh, answer some of the questions left over from this afternoon's session. One thing I wanted to point out to all of you uh, that are interested in practicing FDG PET for clinical purposes, I urge you to go to ASNIC website. They do have a tab uh, called ASNIC Practice Points. There is a session, section, a small pamphlet there for FDG PET imaging and for perfusion PET imaging that goes over all the protocols and that will help you in practical aspects. One of the questions that was asked, this is already in your syllabus. You don't need to write, uh, write down anything. It's on your syllabus from the viability at the, after the thank you slide. What is the optimal cutoff for detecting myocardial viability? And that optimal cutoff varies depending on the test that you use. So this is a nice review published in Journal of Nuclear Cardiology 2010. If you look at PET, PET with FDG ammonia, PET with technetium, stress echo overall, stress echo with uh, low-dose dobutamine, high-dose dobutamine SPECT, SPECT with thallium. What you'll notice is that the mean viable myocardium can vary anywhere from 20% to 40%. Really depends on the technique and the way the test was studied. So I think to answer that question, is there an optimal cutoff point to call something viable or not? Um, there's no definitive answer. It's somewhere between 20 to 40%. I think a lot of people will agree that if you have 20% viability, uh, that's good enough. The next question that I have is for thallium viability. Is there a clinical difference between the four hour and six hour imaging? The answer is when you perform delayed imaging with thallium, the more critical the underlying stenosis, the longer it takes for redistribution. So if you have a subtotal occlusion, there's a greater chance of seeing viability at 24 hours. Whereas if you have more like a 95% lesion, there's a greater chance of seeing redistribution at four hours. So the longer you wait, the better it is, particularly for more severe underlying stenosis. Is there a difference between four to six? No big difference. If six is more practical for your given lab protocol, you can bring the patient back at six. No big advantage uh, of four versus six. Now, the next question is, what's your protocol for FTG PET? I already answered that. You go to ASNIC website, take a look at that. And there was a question uh, about non-transmural scar. So they said, please comment on the idea of non-transmural injury, fixed defect, and the finding of normal wall motion and gated imaging. I think this is an excellent question. It's an excellent question, and this is a very practical question. When compared to cardiac MRI, I think nuclear techniques, PET as well as PET, are at a disadvantage, particularly in identifying non-transmural scars. 
because non-transmural scar is not a full thickness scar. So it's, it could be small and not full thickness, so the adjacent segments may pull it in, and you may not see a wall motion abnormality. All right? So this is important to realize that SPECT and PET are at a slight disadvantage compared to MRI in identifying non-transmural scar precisely for this reason, that your gated wall motion may be totally normal. So they said, please describe what specifically is being done regarding geographic variation, more scrutiny by our societies. I don't exactly understand this question, but I think if you are worried or concerned that the patient may have had real myocardial injury, and if delineation of scar is your clinical question, then cardiac MRI with gadolinium and delayed uh, imaging should be the test of choice. So why is SUV not, sorry, not read on FTG myocardial imaging? SUVs are performed even with FTG cardiac imaging as with oncology. It's just not common. Uh, for example, in our institution, when we do sarcoids, we report out the SUVs. For a regular viability study, we don't always look at a quantitative FTG uptake because the question there is more, what's the relation between how hypoperfused a given area is in relation to how metabolically active it is? I think pathophysiologically, that is a question that we're asking. If an area is hypoperfused, how metabolically active it is. Having said that, I don't have a real answer why quantitative PET is not being used clinically in terms of SUV values for viability. I don't have an answer for that. With that, I think I'm done. Thank you very much.